You guys can be seated. Children, you guys are all dismissed to run crazily out of the sanctuary and go to children's church. Have fun. So before we get started, I'd like to once again open with prayer. Dear gracious and heavenly Father, we once again just come to you. We are in awe of how wonderful and loving a Father you are. Blessed be your name and no other name. In the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So I want to start off with the story about an experience that I had during a training exercise. <clears throat> now, for those of you who don't know me or are thinking, like, who is this guy? I've never seen him before or anything about me. I work in, in the corrections department for county corrections. And part of my job and one of the aspects of my job is I am supposed to and I need to train all officers on how to use the firearms and the weapons that we have in our facility to keep ourselves safe, keep this facility secure, and keep the community secure. So in order for me to be an instructor, I had to go through several months and several hours and hours worth of training. It wasn't just they handed me a certificate and said, here you go, you can go ahead and do this, and we'll trust that everything works out well. No, I had to go through several months of training. I had to go through different trainings in order to be able to tear those weapons down, put them back together, how to manipulate them, how to work them, how to take and clear them if they got jammed. I had to be able to learn how to teach other people how to do the exact same thing because being an instructor is not knowing is not just enough. You have to be able to instruct and tell people how to do that. So the culmination of these months and months of training came down to a week-long firearms qualification course. And yes, I got paid money to shoot weapons for a week. And me, I was, I was happy. I was happy as a pig in a mud pit on this one. So a week-long qualifications course. Now, there were three opportunities I had during this week-long qualification course to qualify, which would make me a full instructor for all weapons in the, in the facility. Now, during this qualification, it had to be done at different, different uh, yardages. I was as close as three yards, and I was as far back as 40 yards shooting a handgun. There were different positions that I had to shoot in. I had to shoot in a standing position. I had to shoot in a kneeling position, and I had to shoot in a prone position. Now, prone position is something that's very different. You're not like this. You have to roll and cant yourself, so the world looks at about a 30-degree angle of what it normally should. So things were difficult, and this was the way that they tested you to make sure that everything that you had learned up to this point, you could put into practice. So it was the last round of qualification for the, the last section of qualification for my first round tryout. And I, up to this point, I had 53 rounds in the center mass of the target. And I had to have a 95% accuracy in order to pass, which means that I could only have 57, or I could only miss three rounds. I could only throw three rounds out of the center kill zone, which is about 11 by 14 inch square. So this last section that I had to go through was me having to move from a standing position to a prone position, draw my weapon, acquire my target, fire seven rounds, re-clear my weapon and reholster within a 10 second time frame. I was worried. This was probably the most difficult section. I was only at seven yards. However, I spent most of my time in movement as opposed to firing the weapon. So I readied myself. I got on the line with 25 other individuals, so it's a pretty big firing line. 
I got on the line with 25 other individuals, and I wait for that command, excuse me, that command to start. The command's given. I immediately look down to the ground, get into my prone position, jump, or get, acquire my target, get on target where I need to be, and I methodically squeeze off my seven rounds. Clear my weapon, holster my weapon, I'm done. I made it within a 10-second time frame. I was excited. Whew, I got this. I'm thinking, I am perfect. Because up to this point, I had been perfect in my qualification. Then the scores are out. I got a 53. I'm thinking, what in the world happened? I shot seven rounds that time. I didn't get one of those rounds in the target where I needed to be. Well, I made a crucial mistake. None of my rounds found their mark. I made a crucial mistake. When I started my movement, I looked down. I took my eyes off of the target that I needed to get beyond. I looked down. And when I acquired the target, when I was shooting at, I had actually acquired the target of the gentleman who was three feet to my right. And all seven of my rounds, even though they hit their mark perfectly, they didn't hit my target. They hit his target. I had failed my first opportunity to become an instructor. Now, those of you who are wondering, yes, I, I did end up qualifying the next time because I corrected my issue. But I had failed my, 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 my qualification because I took my eyes off of the target that I was supposed to be on, which is a rule that you never break when you're using and shooting firearms. You keep your eye acquired on that target. But as Christians, we have all done the same thing. I'm not saying we've all fired weapons, but we've all done the same thing. We have at times, or perhaps now, have taken our eyes off the proper target that we need to be focusing on. And we are focusing our love on something that it should not be focused on. We are wasting our love first on something that cannot love, it, love us back, or worse yet, we are focusing our love on something that can entrap us and cause us to um, become entrapped and lose our Christian walk. We need to stay vigilant as Christians. We need to be focused on the proper target at all time. You see, our focus is only as good as the target that we are focused on. And you're probably thinking, like, that doesn't really make sense, Doug. But it does. Think about it. When I was doing my final shooting scenario, I thought that my focus was perfect. I thought that my focus was absolutely where it needed to be, and it was spot on. However, my focus was very much skewed because I wasn't even focusing on the proper target. When we focus on the proper target, that's when our focus is perfect. When we focus on a target that is not the target we should be focusing on, that's when our focus becomes skewed. You see, we need to remain focused on the one who is responsible for our salvation. And that one who has gifted us eternal life, we need to focus on God and serving him and him alone. And serving God means that we need to be focused on him and serving him at all times. See, he is our target. He is what we need to keep our eyes on. He is the one that we need to be constantly, constantly looking at. Our focus on him, though, should be mirrored in the love that we show him. Because if we're not focusing on him, then we're not loving him like we should be loving him. And our love toward him needs to be greater than any love we show toward anything else on this world. And focusing our love on anything else but God will cause us to miss the mark and fail tremendously. And last week Marvin was talking about 1 John and he was, John had given us a command to love, right? We were given a command that we needed to love each and every individual on this earth regardless if we think they need that love or not. 
Well, this week we're getting another command, but it's a much different command. It is a command not to love. We are given a command not to love. In the passage we are focusing on today, John is telling the church that their love needs to remain focused not on the world, but on God. As we break this passage down, we're going to answer the question, why shouldn't we focus our love on the world? What is the problem if we focus our love on the world? Now our passage today comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It will be up on the screen, I believe. If you want to pull to it on your device, you can do so. But 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, read this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So right off the bat, in the first part of John 15, John, I'm sorry, the first verse of, of, of that, this uh, passage, John is telling the church, and this isn't just the church of the time when John was writing this. This is very much, if not more important to us right now, that we are not to love the world. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. There's a command. We are absolutely given that order, that command, not to love the world. Now, I think we need to pause here for a second because when I first started reading through this and studying this, I started questioning some things. The world, we hear that thing, the, that passage, that phrase, the world, do not love the world. But if we look back on the gospel of John 3.16, what does it say? For God so loved the world. Now, I'm thinking to myself, wait, is the Bible contradicting itself here? Absolutely not. The Bible does not contradict itself because the Bible is absolutely perfect. But the world in the Gospel of John, John 3.16, when Jesus, when God said, for God, when John said, for God so loved the world, he was talking about the people of the world. In that context, the world is the people of the world, which we learned last week we are commanded to love. Regardless if we think that they deserve our love, or we think that they need love, or they don't need love, or they have too much love in their life. We are commanded to love, and God loved the world, the people of the world. Now, the world that we're focusing on today is not the people of the world. We're not, not loving the people. The, love, the world that we are focusing on today are the theories, the rationales, the things of this world. We are talking about the imperfect ideas. We are talking about those things that have stemmed from Satan the prince of darkness who has a very great power in this world. And the world, though created by God, is full of imperfectness and is controlled by evil rather than good. And those things come from the world, cause us nothing but trouble, and they are not to be loved. We are not to love those things. We are not to love the ideas. But how easy is it, though, to not, to not heed those words, do not love the world? Because what does Satan do? Satan does an excellent job of telling us that everything of this world is wonderful. It's fantastic. This is fun. This is a great thing. He makes everything look very, very appealing to us. And the people who live for the world, which I'm sad to say far outnumber the people who don't live for the world, tell us constantly 
that we have to have everything fun. We have to have everything exciting. We have to focus our love, our attention, and our energy on anything but our creator who created the world. See, there are times that we have fallen into these traps. Let's be honest with each other. We're in church, right? We should be honest. We have all fallen into that trap and we have shown more love to the world than we have to God. We have at times always decided ourselves that we want, 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 but don't really need, 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 because we know that God gives us everything we need. But we focus more on the wants. We have given far more energy than we ever should to the things of this world rather than God. And in this passage, John is going to describe to the church the proper attitude that should be focused on the world. And he gives us three reasons, three very very good reasons why we should not love the world. Our first reason comes at the tail end of verse 15, which reads this, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And we can learn from this section of this verse that loving the world makes you an enemy of God. Loving the world makes you an enemy of God. And you're probably thinking to myself, how? Because God is supposed to love each and every one of us. You see, our love toward God should be greater than anything we show, any love we show toward anything else. When we give more time, more energy, and more love to anything that is a product of this world than we do to God, then we are telling God that he is not important to us. We are telling God that the things that come from Satan and the pleasures of this world are far more important than him. And when we speak to God in this way, unfortunately, it makes us his enemy. We are an enemy to God. James 4.4 reads this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's right there. Black and white, in the word of God, that if we become a friend of the world, we become an enemy of God. And if we look at the word enmity here, it comes from the Greek word ekthra, which has a meaning of the word, which has a meaning of hatred and hostility. So let me go back and fill this in for you here then. James 4.4, if I were to take and transmit en- enmity into our common language, it says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred and hostility toward God. I'm not sure I can emphasize enough how bad this is. How very bad it is that we become an enemy and we show nothing but hatred and hostility toward God when we decide to love the world. When we decide that the world and the things and the ideas of this world are more important than God, we are saying to God, I hate you, And I have nothing but hostility towards you. See, our friendship with the imperfect things of this world tell God that we dislike him. Now, I kind of dumbed that down because I used the word dislike when in actuality we should just place the word hate in there. Because enmity means hate. The things that Satan, through his tempting, is telling us that is wonderful, is great, is exciting. But when we give in to those temptations, we are showing God nothing but hostility. Wow, you know when I say that out loud, it kind of breaks my heart. 
it makes me think that here is my creator, the one who's given me the opportunity at eternity. And I'm saying, you're just not important enough to me anymore. I, I, I have some loathing towards you because I like the things that Satan provides me more than I like and love you. You see, God who loves us absolutely, absolutely loves us, becomes our nemesis. All because we are focused on the here and now and the wonderful things that we think are of this world. Then we are, then we are focusing on eternity with God. You see, we are so engrossed on the outlook and pursuing the things of this world and those things that are rejecting Christ. And when we reject Christ, that shows that we have no love for the Father. We are focused on loving the things that come from evil rather than our perfect God. So let me put it into a little bit of perspective for you. My son Mason <clears throat> likes to play video games. I can't play a video game. I have big hot dog fingers. And if you give me a control, I have no idea what the X is, what the triangle is, what the square is. I don't know what the F1, the R1. I don't know what this toggle switch is. The most of the time I like to play the games is because I can wreck the other cars in NASCAR. And that's my sole purpose is I will just wreck into those cars to stop the race. And I like and enjoy spending time with Mason simply because even if I'm bad at the game, it's because I get to spend time with my son. And even if there are times where I don't pick up a remote control and I can sit there and I can talk to him and say, what is this going on? What are you doing here? It's our time together. But if something ever happens and the day comes where Mason says, Dad, I don't need you anymore because this video game is enough for me. This thing of the world is enough for me. I don't need you in my life anymore. That's exactly what we say to God when we choose the things of this world over him, we're saying, God, I don't need you anymore. I have this, and this is enough for me. And those of you who are parents, grandparents, put yourself in that shoe. If you had a, 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 someone you love come up to you and say, I don't need you anymore because I have this, and I, I contest you. I have loathing towards you. I hate you. Because that's exactly what we say to God every time we choose the world over him. We are saying, I don't need you anymore. The things of this world and this here and now is more important than you, and I don't need you for that. You see, God and the world are so opposite that we cannot possibly love both at the same time. God deserves our love. He not only deserves our love, he deserves our absolute and unconditional love. He deserves all the love that we can give him. Deuteronomy 6.5 very explicitly tells us that we are to love God with all of our heart and all of our soul. We are to love him with everything that we have. And that love is not to be shared with anything or any idea that comes from an imperfect evil world. A world that is driven by Satan. Loving the world makes us an enemy of God. Loving the world shows hostility and hatred toward God. That is something I am not comfortable with. I don't think that is something that anyone in this room or anybody who's listening online at home should be comfortable with saying. We need to love God above all other things. But if we continue, we can learn more. We can see that love of worldly things separates us from intimacy with God. 
Verse 16 reads this, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Three things are mentioned in here as symbolizing the world. Desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. And to John, these three things are the things that are essential to the ways of a non-believer. Or in his time, the biblical time, it was essential to the pagan way of life. Because that's what they focused on. They focused on flesh. They focused on the pride of their, their desires of their eyes and the pride of their life. That's what a non-believer focuses on. But if we look at them, I'm sure we've all been tempted in those ways. I know I have. I am not perfect. I have been tempted in those ways. And I have absolutely failed in those ways. And if I can't be honest, then what, what good is it to be up in front speaking to you? I have been tempted in the ways of the flesh. The desires of the eyes and prideful ways of life. And I have failed. I'm sure each and every one of you can think, yes, I have failed too. There are times where I have failed miserably. And it's brought me to my knees. Today we most commonly see those three things though as pleasure Possessions and positions. That's how we take and we associate them with our life right now. Pleasure, possessions, and position. And all three are motives for sin. And when we succumb to the temptations, those sins will separate, separate us from an intimate relationship with our loving God. So I want to take some time on to break those three down. If we look first at pleasures... Lust of the flesh does not only have to do with sexual sin, although in today's society that is probably the most prominent. And you can see it everywhere. Lust of the flesh or pleasure has to do with sexual sin. But more broadly it comes into play when we are determining the goals of our life or decisions that we need to make in our life. Do we make decisions, do we make decisions asking ourselves what's better for God or what's better for me? Do we take and make those decisions saying, I want to know what's best in my life right now. What's going to be fun for me? What's going to be exciting for me? What's going to give me the most pleasure in my life right now? Or do we take and make those decisions based on what's going to be best for God? What does God want me to do? What is according to God's will in my life right now? I'm sure we can all think of time in our life we have chosen the pleasures of this world over God. We have chosen those things that we want to do that make us feel good and make our life what we think is exciting in the here and now over God. I can tell you, I can turn on a television, I can hammer four or five episodes of the book of Boba Fett without even thinking. I can sit and I can watch all Star Wars movies, two or three of them in a clip, three hours at a time. And not even have to think, should I pick up my Bible and read today? Should I spend time with God today? But no, because it, right here and right now I'm making that decision that watching Star Wars, watching the book of Boba Fett, going outside and spending time hunting and not thinking of God brings me pleasure and brings me joy in my life. That's what pleasures and thinking of pleasures in our life take over. Because we start pushing God to the backside. Next, we dive into possessions, which go hand in hand with pleasures. 
because we see something we like. We see something that, man, that is nice. I got to have that because that's going to be nice for me. That's going to be enjoyable for, for me in my life. That's going to bring pleasure. That's going to bring fun in my life. We think that this object we see will be good for us, will be enjoyable for us, and we've got to have that. So we see it. We have that pleasure. That's going to bring us pleasure. I've got to own that. I've got to have that. Therefore, we do anything that we can think of to get it. Perhaps at times we are even neglecting our true wants or the wants, or I'm sorry, the true needs or the needs of our families. Simply because we want this possession so badly that we're coveting it and sinning because we want that so badly because that possession is going to bring me pleasure. The two go very much hand in hand. I'm sure if you look back in biblical time, you can think of, the, the, of David. David, what did he do? He walked out on that roof. Now, walking out on the roof wasn't a bad thing. Walked out on the roof and there she was. Bathsheba was taking a bath. It's okay. She's allowed to take a bath. David looked. Now, it wasn't wrong for him to say, okay, and he could have walked away and said, I'm done with this. But what does David do? He looks. I'm going to slide this back a little bit because I'm going to trip over that. He looks. And not only does he look, he looks again and goes, oh, that is nice. I got to have me that. That's going to bring me joy. The temptation was there and he succumbed and gave in to that temptation. He said, I want that. And what happened? We all know that story where he took and he took Bathsheba. And then Uriah, he couldn't kill him himself. He had to put him on the front line so then Uriah would most certainly be killed off during war. Pleasure and possession go hand in hand. Last, we have pride. The Greek word translated from the word pride has a meaning of a braggart. Or someone who continually boasts with the sole purpose of trying to impress people or impress someone else. Now I'm sure we can all think of people in our lives. Aunt Martha, Uncle Tony, Jim at work, Frank that lives next door. No, I'm not talking about you, Frank, I promise. We can all think of those individuals that every time we talk to them, that conversation turns to them. This is what I have. Did you see that new 2022 pickup truck I just drove in my driveway? Did you see that new tractor that I have that can mow my lawn that's a quarter an acre that I could, quite frankly, push mow? Did you see and hear how much I've climbed up the corporate ladder? I am now VP of sales of the cookie factory in Indiana. That person tells us everything that they are doing, everything wonderful and everything great. They don't boast and tell us these things to glorify God. What do they do? They boast and tell us these things because they are prideful. And they boast and tell us these things because they want to glorify themselves and themselves alone. But as much as we can point at other people and say, you've done this, you've done this. If you look at your hands, you have three fingers pointing back at you. Because as many times as we can point and pick on other people and say, you're prideful in what you're saying, we have all done it. I know I've done that. I know I've said, look at this, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished. Not, look what God has helped me accomplish. Look what God has done in my life. Look at how wonderful God is to me and my family. We've all taken that prideful route to say, look what I've got. I, 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 me, me, me. 
It has nothing to do with God. It has to do with us. Our purpose as Christians is to glorify God in all we do. We are to glorify him and him alone. Allowing our love of worldly desires to outshine our love of God pushes God further from our lives. And the further we are from God, the less blessings we receive from God. We've lost that intimacy with him. Isaiah 59.2 drives this point home well, I believe. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. As much as we don't want to hear this, we need to. Loving the world and living for the things of this world means we are living in sin. John commands us not to love. That is the living, breathing word of God. And when we violate a living, breathing word of God, we are in sin. When we place the love of worldly desires above God, we lose love of the, the love of the Father and our desire to do His will because we are living in that sin. And when we live in sin, we lose the desire to have that intimacy with God. We lose the desire to want to do His will. For example, reading the Bible may be difficult for us. Living in the world, we start to shy away from the Word of God because that hurts. When we read the truths of the, of the word of God and we're living in the world, that starts to hurt. That stings. It's like getting hit in the head over and over again with a two-by-four saying you're wrong. You need to recorrect yourself. You need to come back to me. Or even something as enjoyable as it should be as Christian fellowship with other people becomes monotonous, becomes a problem for us. And what do we do? We try to push that negativity off on those individuals. We try to push it off on them saying there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong on, with that person. Every time I get together with them, every time I want to talk with them, all they want to talk about is God. This is annoying. I can't stand this. We try to push that negativity and say there's something wrong with them. In fact, there's nothing wrong with them. It's us. There is something wrong with us. When we take and we put the world above God, we lose the blessing of his presence. And that leaves us feeling empty. And there's nothing in this world, nothing of this world that can make us feel full. Only God can make us feel full with his intimacy and his love. There's an illustration from one commentator that, that demonstrates this perfectly. And I don't know if it's a true story, but it's a very good illustration. See, there was a, a student, it was a young man who was a senior at a Christian college. And he was doing very well living for the word of God. He had taken and he was preaching on Sundays. He had excellent grades. And God was using him to take and challenge other Christians to make their Christian walk stronger, deeper, and more straight. Then something happened to this young man. His testimony disappeared. His testimony was no longer viable. His grades began to drop and even his personality seemed to change. Something was just off with this young man. And the president of the college noticed this. So did his class or his teachers and his instructors. There's something off with this young man. So the president of the college called him in. He said, young man, something's going on here. 
There's been a change in your life. There's been a change in your work. Something is not right. I wish you'd tell me what's wrong, the president said. The, the, the man became kind of evasive at first, which is what happens to each and every one of us when we get lovingly confronted by other Christians saying, hey, something's going on. We start to push back and say, there's nothing wrong with me. So the boy became evasive. And then he opened up and he decided to tell his story. He said, I've become engaged to this lovely Christian girl. And we're planning on getting married after graduation. He said, I've been called to a wonderful church. And I am excited. Excited to get married. To move into that parsonage. And to start my pastorate. I'm excited. He said, I've been so excited to do all of these things here and now. That I've come to the place where I don't want the Lord to return. And he said, when this happened, the power of God in my life has dropped away. You see, the greatest intimacy we can lose is the enjoyment of the Father's love when we live in this world. And live for this world. We lose the intimacy of the Father's love. This young man had become worldly. He let his desires of the world come between him and the Father. As good as his intentions were, he let the world supersede the Father. He had fallen into the temptations of the desires of pleasure, possession, and pride. And he lost the power of God and his Holy Spirit. And that's something that can happen to each and every one of us here when we give in to those temptations and we get separated from God. Our focus needs to be on God, not on what we can gain or what we can have from this world. We need to focus on God. We not, don't need to focus on that which will bring us instant gratification right now. Working for God is, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's time consuming. But isn't it worth it? Because look at the reward we get. When we give our faith over to him, we get the reward of eternity. We don't need the simple pleasures of this world that simply disappear. Enjoying God's love may take work, but that work is truly worth it. And it will completely fill us. And last we can learn that loving an inconsistent world robs you of the opportunity to share God's glory in eternity. Now this is an absolute truth here. Listen to what verse 17 tells us. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now I'm going to let you guys all in on a, on a secret. And if any of you has a pacemaker or something like that, please brace yourselves right now. We'll have paramedics standing by. But the world as we know it right now, right here, only has a finite amount of time. We're only here for a fraction of eternity. This world does, will not last forever. The culture, the philosophies, the rationales of this world that are based on selfishness and pride will one day be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen? 
At least I have some people awake. One day, all things that we spend countless hours in the mud and muck and mire of this world just trying to get ahead because we live of the world will all be gone. When we do these things for their own selfish reasons, living of the world, that stuff will all turn to dust and be forgotten. When I go to heaven, it's not going to matter how many weapons I have in my house, how many fishing rods I have lined up against the back wall of my basement. That is all stuff that will disappear. I'm sure God's not going to care that I have 15 tackle bags worth of, of fishing lures sitting there. What he does care is what I've done for him in this world and how I've glorified his name. One day all the things that we spend time on trying to get, they're going to be gone, guys. It's going to be gone. And the sad part and the truth of everything is that we have spent so much time forging ahead, being of the world, that we may have lost our chance to be with God in eternity. And when we reach those gates on our judgment day, God may very well say to you, may very well say to me, I never knew you, depart from me. You know, I don't know about you, but that's not something that I'm comfortable with. That's, the thought of that just gives me a shiver up and down my spine. That when I reach those pearly gates and God is there to greet me, he can say to me, I never knew you because you lived of the world. You didn't live for me. You lived of this world. I want God to look at me and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not get away from me. Not depart. I want him to say, well done. I want to be able to abide in him forever. I want to be able to live forever in his love. That's what each and every one of us should be striving and working towards. Living in his love. Living for him, not for the world. The present world is not going to last. Everything around us is drastically changing. And if you don't know this, go home and turn on the news. Flip on the internet. See how much the world has changed in the past month, six months, years. The world is drastically changing. We need to change and focus ourselves on something that is eternal and will not change. Warren Wiersbe says this, a Christian who loves the world will never have peace or security because he has linked his life with that which is in a state of flux. Flux, something that's always moving, something that's never consistent, something that will always change. God is our constant. God is and always will be solid, perfect, and never changing. And those who are faithful servants of God, doing his will, will remain in him when this world has perished. We will get to experience the new heaven and new earth, not those who live of the world. We will get to experience that new heaven and new earth. Those who place their trust, faith, and lives in him will be able to share the glory of God for all of eternity. And that is what we should be striving for. That is what we should be wanting to do each and every moment of our lives. 
I'm going to close with a passage from Wearsby. I like Wearsby as much as, as uh, Marvin likes Tozer. I like Wearsby. He puts it right, nice, straightforward. Here it is. This is what it says. This is what it means. I really like Wearsby. That's just my sidebar. But Wearsby says this. It is important to note that no Christian becomes worldly all of a sudden. Worldliness creeps up on a believer. It is a gradual process. First is the friendship of the world. By nature, the world and the Christian are enemies. A Christian who is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Next, the Christian becomes spotted by the world. The world leaves a dirty mark on one or two areas of his life. This means that gradually the believer accepts and adopts the ways of the world. When this happens, the world ceases to hate the Christian and starts to love him. So John warns us, love not the world. But too often our friendship of the world leads to love. As a result, the believer becomes conformed to the world. And you can hardly tell the two apart. Why shouldn't we love the world? First, loving a dying world makes us an enemy of God. We've heard that. We see it in scripture. Second, it separates us from the intimacy of God. Intimacy that we should always be longing for in him. And last, loving a world, loving the dying world deprives us of sharing the eternal glory of God. So I'm going to ask you some very direct questions today. I think each and every one of us need to take this to heart. Have you started depend, to depend more on the things or worldly possessions out of pleasure and pride than you do God? We need to choose only one love. We need to choose only one love. Loving the world is not the correct decision. That's it. That's a simple answer. I challenge each of you to spend much needed time with God. Get down on your knees. Beg him to show you how you are tied to a world that can drag you away from him. And ask him how he can break those bonds so that you may show him the full love that he deserves. And you may be able to share glory with him in eternity and look upon his face and praise him forever. Let us pray. Dear gracious and heavenly Father, all we need is you. And God, forgive me and forgive us when we put anything else ahead of you and loving you. God, you are all that we need. You are all that we should desire. You should all, are all that we should focus on and strive for. God, we love you and we thank you for the gift of salvation that you have given us through your son Jesus and the chance that we have at eternity. In the name of your son we pray. Amen.